Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. It was the first time in my life that I'd ever had had a panic attack. Just Googling those drugs, you know, knowing nothing about either condition, I just couldn't believe what I was reading. Just how bad these conditions get, you know, that nobody's ever survived Alzheimer's disease. And it wasn't even clear whether or not my mom had Alzheimer's disease, but she was, you know, given drugs for the condition and Parkinson's disease as well. I was like, well, what's the big deal about Parkinson's disease? And then I started reading about you know, how people with Parkinson's disease, you know, they lose their, their ability to move. You know, many of them end up actually dying because they choke when trying to eat. It's like a major cause of mortality for people with Parkinson's, late, late stage Parkinson's disease. And so just thinking about my mom going through that was just the most upsetting thing, you know, imaginable. And it was just really, really dark. I remember my heart began racing Hi, friends, and welcome back to another episode of At the End of the Tunnel. Today, I'm talking to somebody whose journalism career went in a slightly different direction after his mother was diagnosed with a degenerative brain disease. I got to meet Max Lugavere several years ago when he so graciously agreed to come to one of my Shine events and share the story of how he became one of the leading authorities on brain health. Since then, Max has become a dear friend and quite the expert, particularly on the food that you should be eating to keep your brain healthy, and he put it all in his New York Times bestselling book on the subject called Genius Foods. In addition to writing, Max regularly appears on The Dr. Oz Show. You may have seen him on Rachel Ray and The Doctors. He's also a filmmaker, a podcaster, and a speaker. But Max wasn't always the go-to guy for brain health. As you'll hear in the interview, he actually started out making these quirky little videos in college with his best friend, Jason Silva. That landed them jobs as co-hosts for Al Gore's independent cable network called Current TV. I remember when that was out. Then Max hopped around the television world for a bit, and it was in 2010, just when his star was shining so brightly, when everything ground to a halt after he got the news that his mother had been diagnosed with early-onset dementia. Max, who is a journalist at heart, began collaborating with top scientists and clinicians to find answers to his mother's condition, and his discoveries led him to a surprising realization. Brain disease often starts decades before the diagnosis, and if only people knew that the foods they put in their body can either make or break a healthy brain, they would make different choices. Then... Max launched a Kickstarter to create a documentary about these findings called Breadhead, and he's now written those two books about brain health, Genius Foods, and most recently, Genius Life. And Max's podcast, which is also called The Genius Life, is one of the top podcasts in the health and wellness category on iTunes. Guys, this was an awesome conversation. I really can't wait for you to hear the story of how Max 
had been on one track to becoming a television star, yet little did he know he was being divinely groomed to challenge the traditional healthcare system where they treat the symptoms more than the cure. And after hearing his story, my hope for you is twofold. Number one, I hope you feel more empowered to educate yourself and ask more questions in the event that somebody you know is diagnosed with a degenerative health condition. And number two, I hope you remember that everything in your life is steadily preparing you for your purpose. And without further ado, let's hear from Max Lugavere. Max, welcome to the podcast. As always, I like to start these conversations by talking about childhood. So when you think back to uh, little Max (laughs) (laughs) and your earliest days, what toy or activity do you remember being really fond of? Well, probably my favorite toy from childhood was a a toy. It was like they were action figures called exosquads. And I just thought that they were like really elaborate and just so cool. Basically, what it was, was this exoskeleton machine fighter robot. And the the front of it would open up and the toy would also come with this little man. And you would put the little man inside this much larger machine robot. And then you would you would like collect all the robots and have them fight one another. It was definitely my favorite toy. And I think looking back, I probably really appreciated it because, you know, as people as humans, we're pretty frail. We're strong, but we're not that strong. And I've always been really obsessed, actually, with superheroes and, you know, superpowers and things like that. And when this mech toy came out, this exosquad toy, it was just so cool, the concept that you could be this delicate little person, but then put yourself inside of this tough iron and steel, you know, exterior, you know, strapped with all these different weapons. I don't know. I just thought that that was like the coolest thing. Is that something you would get for, uh, I know you're, you're Jewish, right? So there was no Christmas. No Christmas. Yeah. Uh, presents. <laughs> <laughs> How did you come across the Exo Squad? Is that something that, did they have a commercial or your friends that you play with? My best friend growing up, his name was Bennett. We were like, inseparable for many years and we just i was hanging out you know his his mom would watch over us and we would like you know we'd have all these play dates and one day we were in a duane reed in his neighborhood of manhattan which is where i grew up and they had them and they were very expensive toys i remember them being they were about 14 dollars a toy back then and uh and his mom bought me the first one and i was just like obsessed with it, it might have even been more it might have been around 16 or 18 dollars because again they were like really intricate and they came with basically it was like two toys in one and yeah and so uh that i was just like i discovered it at the, at the Dwayne reed and it's one of those things where even in adulthood i've actually probably even this year gone on to like ebay to see if i could buy the whole set just because i have such fond memories of that toy and how cool it was in my little you know, child Max brain. Interesting. I'm surprised they haven't made a, a movie about the Exo Squad. Yeah. Have they made one yet? Was there a television show or is it a car- cartoon? Well, I certainly wasn't aware of a movie or a cartoon, uh, an Exo Squad movie or cartoon at the time because it, discovering the toy was the first time I'd heard of it. But I think that it actually was a cartoon. I'm not entirely sure. But I was just like obsessed with those toys. They were so cool. And of course, I was, you know, I was really into superhero toys and x-men and all that stuff those were probably my favorite characters growing up but then when i saw these these like robot toys i just it was like mind-blowing it was just very elaborate and it had all these like moving parts and you know i just thought it was so cool 
Well, it also gives you, I think, a l- bit of more context for anatomy and the human body, you know, because as you grow up, you obviously go to a doctor's office at some point in your life and they have a little skeleton and you've already, you already have a point of reference for all of that. So did that come up at all in your life growing up as a child? Health, wellness, skeletons, anatomy, anything yeah, like that? Yeah. I mean, I've just, I've always kind of been interested in health and anatomy and I've just always thought that it was really cool. I've always sort of had a penchant for, you know, understanding like interesting factoids about the body and and remembering them and just being really kind of just always gravitating to uh, new insights that I could glean about how the body works. But at the same time, I recognized frailty and disease and aging. And I've always been a really empathetic person, just really sensitive and tapped into the suffering of others. And for me, the suffering that was most visible was illness and disability and deformity and things like that. So, you know, I've always just sort of recognized on the one hand, how wondrous the human body is, but on the other hand, how frail and vulnerable it is. And so this idea that you know, this myth- mythology surrounding superheroes and exosquad fighters and things like that, that we could take our bodies and, and upgrade them in a way somehow or conceive of them being upgraded or, or you know, invincible or just stronger than they are. To me, I was just always a very enticing promise. And I think that that is what ultimately kind of was the on-ramp into my interest in fitness and supplementation and health and everything that I do today really is ultimately about sort of bolstering, like buttressing, you know, the body because the body is amazing, but the body is also, uh, you know, we're just soft tissue or these breath gasping, you know, meat bags. And, and I've, I've certainly experienced illness in a profound way in my life. So I guess, yeah, those, those were probably the initial seeds that made me interested in all this. Before the genius life, Max, obviously you grew up in Manhattan, you said. What was your family dynamic like? Did you grow up with both of your parents? I know you had a brother. Both my parents were together up until I turned 18. My mom's name was Kathy and my dad is Bruce and they were very good parents. They fought with one another, but despite their differences, they really stuck it out for me and my two younger brothers, Andrew and Benny. And they also, they had a business that they ran together, which was uh, really inspiring and sort of the first taste I got of what it meant to be an entrepreneur or entrepreneurs. My mom and my dad, they didn't come from money. You know, they came from poor backgrounds and they were very industrious and resourceful. Sometime after they got together, they they worked in the same industry. They were in the garment center in New York City, which back then was, you know, back when they were working in it was predominantly, it attracted a lot of Jewish people, which is, you know, how, how I grew up. And at a certain point, they launched their own business. They created a, a clothing manufacturing company that did really well, actually, for 15, 20 years. And so I had a I had a really privileged upbringing. I mean, I, you know, I was born in midtown Manhattan. I went to uh, public school my whole life. I was able to get into sort of like magnet schools that were known for their diversity. But, you know, for whatever reason, (laughs) I always ended up in sort of like the gifted program. So I was surrounded by pretty smart people. But I also, you know, come like phys ed or lunchtime, like I was always around just a, a 
people from across the socioeconomic spectrum in a New York City public school. So I grew up, I grew up on the one hand, you know, with parents who were doing really well, and I got to enjoy, you know, all the all the amazing fruits of that. But on the other hand, I also got to see poverty. You know, I had some of my closest friends growing up were unspeakably poor. So it was uh, it was a really you know interesting upbringing, and I think it's led to me kind of having a having a pretty balanced view, you know, on things. I grew up in Alabama and diet was not even a remote consideration. You ate to get full and you ate because the food tastes good or something like that. What was your relationship with food and diet when you were growing up? My mom was the primary, you know, she did all the shopping in my house and between her and my grandmother and, you know, housekeepers that we had, I mean, those three people provided all of the meals that me and my brothers ate. And, we had access to healthy food. I mean, you know, again, we grew up, I grew up in New York City. And so my mom would shop at all of the supermarkets in the neighborhood, chasing deals, you know, as, as one does. But generally, you know, my mom was a health conscious person. She was conscious of what, you know, she thought to be a healthy eating pattern back then. You know, there was always a salad on the table. There was always a vegetable on the table, things like that. But we also indulged a lot. We also, you know, there were always you know, Entenmann's cakes and boxed donuts. And uh, I started every morning with a big bowl of cereal. And so we had those indulgences as well. And in tandem with that, my mom was always very afraid of heart disease because her father had, had died of heart disease, or so we believe. And because of that, she was very attuned to the messaging of her day about what it meant to eat a heart-healthy diet. And for somebody growing up in the 50s and 60s, and even further compounded by the dietary guidelines that were set forth in the 70s and 80s, you know, the, the diet that we had adopted in my house was sort of a low-fat, low-cholesterol diet, certainly one that was low in saturated fat. And growing up, I remember actually preferring margarine, which came in those pale yellow tubs, to real butter. Like, I actually really enjoyed the taste of margarine for whatever reason. And that's what I, what I, what I preferentially opted for. We know now that margarine was, you know, back then made of partially hydrogenated fats, which, you know, are just rife with what are called trans fats. Very, very bad for you. But I never saw my mom eat any eggs. She avoided dietary cholesterol. My mom never ate any red meat or anything like that, you know, because red meat has artery clogging and I'm using air quotes, saturated fat. So we would eat things that were occasionally deep fried, like we would have lean chicken breasts that were deep fried in corn oil with a wheat flour breading. But the corn oil, you know, that, that plastic tub of corn oil that we always kept by the stove had a big heart, you know, red heart healthy logo on it. So you take, <laughs> you know, a lean chicken breast and you put fat free seasoned, you know, breadcrumbs around it and you, uh, you flash fry it in some corn oil and that's like a perfectly healthy meal. Right. That was probably bought and paid for by the uh, <laughs> whoever the manufacturer Wesson. of that stuff was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, probably had all kinds of guys writing the requirements, restrictions in the FDA. I know. So, I mean, we, we, we ate healthy based on like our ignorance of what it meant to eat healthy at the time. I mean, it's not for, for lack of effort. My mom certainly wanted to to eat healthily. 
you know, and she thought that she was, but you know, our, our understanding of what it means to eat healthy has evolved since then. And we now know that those, those oils are not healthy. In fact, they're quite the opposite. And, you know, we know the truth about things like dietary cholesterol and red meat and science is always evolving. Of course, it's continually evolving, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think I became interested in the nutritional side of things around my mid teens. I started eating more salads. I became interested in dietary fat. I read a book by a guy named Udo Erasmus, the fats that heal, the fats that kill. You read that as a teenager? Yeah. yeah. Why? I just became really interested in health and, 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 and fitness. It, it started as an interest in bodybuilding, not because I wanted to be a bodybuilder or because I was necessarily all that vain or anything like that. I was just genuinely interested in various tactics, supplements, steps that we can take, things that we can do can transform our bodies into, you know, into that like superhero ideal, you know, and as a little kid, as like an introverted, shy, insecure computer programmer, I, I used to like, I was a programmer when I was in high school, self-taught. I just gravitated to the science because I just thought it was so cool, you know, that I could like go to the gym and pick up and put down like these heavy things and take a few, you know, mystery powders and eat some protein and, and maybe a couple of tablespoons of this special fat here and there, uh, you know, would, would make me not only feel better, but look better in the mirror and boost my confidence. And I just thought it was a, a, a very enticing proposition. So I just became really interested. And were you playing sports at the time? No, I've never, I never played any sports. So you were just a self-taught programmer. Were you in like some sort of chat room? Is that how you found out about <laughs> the fats that heal book? Like how did you even find <laughs> all the health books in the world? Why that one? Yeah, I was in, I was definitely in chat rooms, but then I also discovered what are, what were called news groups. I would access them through AOL, but then ultimately there was a program called Outlook, Microsoft Outlook. I think that's still around. Yeah. And you could you could access news groups through Outlook as well. And so there was like alt.bodybuilding, alt.fitness. Those were like the message. Those were early message boards, basically. And so I would go on those message boards and I would learn about different books. You know, for example, one of the early posters in these in these news groups is a guy named Lyle McDonald and his name still comes up in fitness circles today. He was one of the early proponents of the ketogenic diet and he actually wrote a book called The Ketogenic Diet and I remember buying that when I was you know 14 15 and reading all about the ketogenic diet like decades before you know the keto craze that we're seeing now. That must have sounded like the most off thing in the world growing up <laughs> in a household where red meat and all that was banned, right? Oh, yeah. I definitely, towards the end of my high school career, I just remember trying all different kinds of crazy diets. My mom thought that I was insane, but I did try a ketogenic diet. I did that for a few weeks, which, you know, it was fun. I could, I, I even remember what I bought. I remember buying these like little, I think the brand is like Baby Bell or something. They're like these little cheeses that come in wax coating that you open up. I used to eat those for snacks because they had zero carbs. So I did, I did a ketogenic diet well, when I was in high school. I tried that. I also did a diet that was floating around in the message boards that I, don't, I wouldn't recommend to anybody, but it was called a fat fast diet. And basically what the diet is, all, all you eat on this diet is like protein powder and flaxseed oil. And, uh, <laughs> and the idea is that it like, it's basically a ketogenic diet, but it's like a very low calorie ketogenic diet. And so I tried that for a little while and that was, that was pretty awful. But I was genu genuinely interested. I had a, I all, I've always had a very healthy relationship with food. For anybody listening, you know, thinking that oh my god, this guy's 
got like an eating disorder or had an eating disorder. I, I've just always been very interested in, in like how, you know, to push the limits of the body and to see what it could do under these, you know, novel stimuli. What were some of your successes back in those early days of experimentation? Do you have, did you have any? I mean, for me, one of my early successes had nothing to do with fitness, but it was actually my my high school senior thesis. I wrote a 10-page report on creatine monohydrate, which is a sports supplement. <laughs> so it's a it's a work. <laughs> Did anybody I even read so. that? <laughs> <laughs> no. I wish I still had it. Creatine yeah, creatine is like a it's like a workout mm. supplement. So I was taking it, you know, back then and and I just thought it was really cool. I thought it was like this really cool substance. So I was 18 when I did that. And I believe I got an A in the paper. And this was the year 2000. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the happinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, You'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. You went to University of Miami, of all places. Why? Well, so I, I told you that I was like a computer programmer, and I definitely like began high school as more of an introvert. You know, I spent a lot of time in chat rooms on in those news groups. But by the end of high school, I sort of started to come out of my my shell, so to speak. And I think that my interest in fitness definitely helped with that. I was feeling good about myself, about my body. I was gaining more confidence. And at a certain point, I I think I took it I had taken a trip to Miami and something about the city just really resonated with me. You know, I think it's a very sensual city. It's a city where it gets under your skin. And I like that it had this sort of international flair and that it was fashionable. And these were all kinds of things that to me were, were very attractive at the time. Even though I, I wasn't fashionable at all, I just kind of liked the aspirational aspect of the city. So I decided to go there. And when I first started college, I was actually a pre-med major. So I, was, I, was, um, I majored in biology. And that was basically something that I chose based on my interest in, in sports medicine and fitness and, and nutrition science. But once I had gotten to Miami, 
I was like seduced by the city and by the people and the culture. And I realized that also, you know, at, at the same time, I realized that I had like an artistic sensibility. Um, like I had an, I had an appreciation for aesthetics, which I think is, is also, you know, why I love Miami so much. And that led to me actually changing my major so that I was no longer a biology major. I ended up double majoring in film and psychology. And, you know, I chose film really, I've, I've always been a film buff, but I chose film not necessarily because I, I had always wanted to be a filmmaker, but I just liked that it, it was a major that allowed me to kind of explore my other interests and to just kind of feel out my inner space, you know, and to figure out like what it was that I, that I ultimately wanted to do. It was a major where I was surrounded by artists, you know, people who were interested in, in storytelling. And so, yeah, I mean, like looking back, it was kind of an odd, odd choice, but it was the right choice for me. Talk about meeting Jason. Yeah, we met in that introductory film course where it was the first time I'd ever taken a course on, on movie making. It was called Introduction to Motion Pictures. It's really funny. I haven't thought about this in a long time, but I, I sat in that class with a Brazilian girl named Maida, who was this beautiful Brazilian chick. And me and her would always have like these heated philosophical conversations. I, at the time, I was also kind of feeling out like my spiritual like leanings at the time. I was really, I was really into a, a writer named Jiddu Krishnamurti. It was a very bohemian time for me. And so I would sit in this class with Maida, who's just like this very smart Brazilian girl. And this guy was sitting right in front of us. And uh, he always wore tank tops and he had like this long ponytail hair. And he would turn around and uh, the, like one day he just turned around and he like interjected in like our in this conversation that we were having. And I think it was really to get to talk to the Brazilian girl that I was sitting next to. <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately, we started talking and we became not only really good friends, but like best friends. We 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 began hanging out every single day at UM and uh, we shared an interest in philosophy, although I t tended to be more interested in science and health and nutrition and things like that. He was he was much more interested in, in philosophy, but we shared an, an interest in artistry and storytelling and filmmaking and actually, he was a major reason why I became interested in digital filmmaking. So he was at the time taking a course on documentary filmmaking, which, you know, he would describe to me. And this was before YouTube. So this was like, this was a course that really came about and was enabled by the fact that for the first time, digital cameras were so inexpensive. You know, you could take, you could shoot pretty high quality video at the time with a point and shoot like still camera. And so that idea that you could like take these really interesting videos like on the fly to me was very enticing. And so he got me interested in documentary filmmaking. So we would like run around South Beach shooting these like little videos of ourselves, having the time of our lives, meeting girls and having like, you know, experiences with like women for the first time with South Beach as the backdrop, which was which was amazing. <laughs> um, and then we had all these friends. We had all these like international friends. And for me, as I mentioned, I've always had a very diverse friend group, extremely diverse. And in, and in, in Miami, the same was true. So all of my friends, no, I didn't have a single friend that was like from the US. My closest friends were all, you know, either from South America or the Middle East. And it was a really interesting place to go to school because, you know, some of my friends or my, my acquaintances just came from 
unfathomable wealth. And you got to sort of see what that was like and navigating those waters, you know, amid the the backdrop of South Beach. And, you know, we were always very interested in like going out, but not just going out to bars. You know, me and Jason really enjoyed going out to like the best clubs in South Beach, like the top, top, you know, most world class nightclubs that there were. And we kind of saw that as like a metaphor. Like if you can get past the velvet rope of some of the top clubs in South Beach, then you're going to be pretty successful in life. You know, yeah, it was a really great time, you know, and I think that we we really enjoyed being able to ping pong off of each other and we learned from each other and and we just had a great time. So he's got the gift of gab, obviously. Is he the one that would talk you guys <laughs> into these clubs or or did you take turns? Like that was there a strategy? No, it wasn't it wasn't really about that. To get into those clubs, it's not about the gift of gab, it's about street smarts. And so we, you know, we would learn I mean, it sounds vulgar, but you have to, we would learn, you know, in South Beach, you have to, you can't just roll up to a nightclub, a popular nightclub, you know, if you're three guys. So, you know, we would, we would sort of bring into the fold these like groups of girls that we would then become friends with and we would like pre-party with them. And then a good friend of ours named Ayub, he's this very street smart, you know, Moroccan kid we learned that it also helps to like grease the bouncer, you know? So we would like start tipping the bouncer to go in. So you learn all these things. And we were just like these, these kids, you know, when I look back now, it's so funny, but that's how we ended up getting in. we ended up at these nightclubs where as these like South beach, you know, university of Miami, you know, undergrad brats, like we were rubbing shoulders with some of the like wealthiest people in the world, celebrities, you know, famous models and things like that. It was, it was really an amazing experience. Did those uh, film clips that you and Jason were recording, did that end up turning into the textures of selfhood or was that something completely separate? They did. Yeah. So we would, we became very interested and, and Jason was, has really been into doing this as like, you know, his whole life, you know, and it's something that like, that I definitely appreciated and sort of gravitated to as well. This idea of capturing special moments with your, with your digital like filmmaking tools you know, because life is fleeting and we were having all these, these experiences that we felt like were just too precious to allow them to just, you know, fade into ephemera and, and to, and to be forgotten ultimately. So, you know, he had a camera, I bought a camera and we would just like film each other. We would shoot each other. And this was like before iPhones. So, I mean, today it seems like this wouldn't be a revolutionary, you know, idea, but back then it certainly was like, we, we literally bought cameras so that we could take selfies and, and shoot videos of our friends having what we would call peak experiences. And in doing so, the thinking was that by capturing these experiences on film, we could basically relive them, thereby like immortalizing these moments that are otherwise ephemeral, as I mentioned. And so we would start, we would, we would just do that every, anytime that we would go out, you know, we would, anytime that we would, you know, have a, a girl that we were dating or whatever, you know, we would, we would basically do that. We would turn the camera on ourselves, which at the time was again, like a novel concept. You know, you buy cameras to shoot something that you're looking at, not, you know, yourself. And so we would do that. And then, um, how textures of selfhood came about, I had an independent documentary project. Like I had a class and the final project was to be an independent study documentary. And it could be a documentary about whatever you wanted. Cause I, I then I took a documentary class. Basically the task was to do a documentary about any, any subject that you, you know, that you want. So it was my idea to do a film basically about our lives in Miami. And 
the whole film was essentially this performance piece of me and Jason taking turns ranting to the camera about our lives in Miami and how it was sort of like a call to spiritual hedonism, you know, spiritual wisdom has long decried pleasures of the flesh, right? Like to reach God, you know, to see God, to reach enlightenment, you have to deny the pleasures of the flesh. You have to abstain from sex until marriage. You have to, you know, be okay with walking across, you know, nails or lying down, you know, or coals or whatever, or, you know, self-flagellation or whatever it happens to be. There's, there's this romanticization about pain when it comes to finding spiritual truth. And we felt, you know, very much that we were finding spiritual truth amid the nightclubs of, of South Beach, you know, with these, these peak experiences that we were having, you know, with music, with girls, with friends. And so I was like, let's do a documentary to kind of like capture that, that feeling. And in the documentary, we used all of the footage that, or a lot of the footage that we were shooting at the time, just for fun as B-roll. So like layered over, you know, Jason and I just sort of ranting to the camera and that ended up being textures of selfhood. So it was like this student film. And we, as undergraduates, we caught wind of this TV network that was being launched by Al Gore and co. And it was called current TV. And they went around the U.S. looking for content creators. And me and Jason, you know, we were just, our jaws were on the floor when we sat in that, that initial early meeting because it just seemed like such an amazing job for two kids who didn't know what the hell they were going to do when they graduated college, you know? Okay, so you're hanging out with Jason Silva. Sounds like you guys are very much boys or men about town. So you're no longer really spending a lot of time in chat rooms and <laughs> news groups and stuff. Have you graduated or suspended this the whole creatine mono, monohydrate like angle of your life? Or because now you're like on this spiritual quest. You know, you're reading Krishnamurti, so I'm sure that's not really aligning so much with the nuances of of diet and all of that or or is it you kind of hit the nail on the head that i was definitely still like interested in it but it it had kind of taken a back seat i was exploring this new side of myself you know this sort of like artist side of myself where i was really interested in in storytelling i was also really interested at the time in music and that was sort of a burgeoning interest for me i was interested in i was sort of like seeing myself as a social entity really for the first time and, and having experiences with, with women, with, you know, with like the, with, with like the real women of South beach, which is like an, a, you know, an exciting. Miata, the Brazilian. Yeah. Yeah. My, yeah. The Brazilian. <laughs> yeah. Like, so there was only, I guess, so much bandwidth that I had. And I was also really interested in, yeah. Krishnamurti, as I mentioned, I was, I was becoming more interested in music and film and, you know, becoming a filmmaker and, also, I was trying to become a musician at the time. I was, I was in, you know, at the same time, I was teaching myself to play guitar. This was during the time of current TV when that actually, when that first started? No, this was like in college, like in college. That's when, when all the nutrition stuff sort of got relegated to, to the backseat. How did the uh, current TV gig come about? Was that a submission? Or did you know someone who knew someone? No, no. We um, so the the this team of executives at what would ultimately be called Current TV, it, it had yet to be named, were touring the country and giving these presentations at uh, film schools, at colleges across the country, because they were looking for content creators. They were going to hire fifty content creators to. This is literally the the proposition was that this company was going to hire fifty students 
They were going to give them salaries. They were going to give them a backpack, a laptop, and a camera. And they were basically going to allow them to travel the world filming the content that would ultimately make up uh, the airtime of this of this TV network, current TV. So basically what you guys had already been doing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we had already been doing. So me and Jason, we looked at each other and we were like, this looks like a dream job. We were like these, you know, doe-eyed idealists. Like, I don't, I don't think that either of us had any sense of what we wanted to do. I mean, we were film, film majors, but neither of us wanted to go to Hollywood and like get jobs working like for crew, you know, like in, in, on film sets, you know, it's not, I don't think what either of us want, wanted to do. I think that we both realized that we had like a voice that we felt was a little bit more unique and had, had more to offer to the world. And so we saw this opportunity as just an amazing, as an amazing opportunity. And so we applied, we, we followed the instructions. We sent in like a job application. They, so the application basically read like what I can only imagine a, a, an application to be on the real world looked like, you know, it was like essay questions and then to send in, um, footage of yourself on camera, like talking to the camera, saying a little bit about yourself, your interests. That's pretty much it. Uh, so we submitted those applications with thousands of other people around the U.S. And, you know, we waited, I think, a few weeks and we didn't really hear anything. But, you know, during that time, I was kind of finishing up this independent study, uh, this this Textures of Selfhood project for a grade. And so what Jason and I did was we decided to email. There was like this email box. It was like info at currenttv.com or something or whatever the URL was at the time. And we sent an email in. And it's funny because the person reading those emails is a guy named Ezra Cooperstein, who to this day is still one of my one of my close friends. But we sent an email into the to to the powers that were at Current TV, and we were like, "Hi guys, you know we we sent in this, you know we sent in our applications independently. My name is Max Lugavere, and I'm I'm writing on behalf of you know myself and Jason Silva, who's another applicant. But we just finished this independent study documentary project, and we think that better than the than the written application, better than us just kind of talking to the camera, that it really kind of like encapsulates who we are, not just who we are, but our filmmaking sensibilities, our talents as filmmakers and producers. But ultimately, like it really showcases our voice, I think, in a way that was much more authentic to who we were at the time. They responded and they said, sure, send it in. So we sent it in this this crazy film there were scenes of like sex and you know us ranting against organized religion and it was insane it was a, it was a huge risk to take but you know we had nothing to lose so we sent in the film and it was like a couple weeks later we found out that the head of programming was like going through the, the stacks of submissions right and then the guy who we had emailed to see if they could just give this film a chance you know and to watch it in addition to the to the job applications that we had submitted he basically plucked it out of the pile and made the head of programming sit down and watch the film. And essentially like long story short, he thought that it was brilliant (laughs) (laughs) based on that film. They threw out basically the original model of hiring 50 digital correspondents. We got a call. I remember where I was. I was on a New York city public bus at the time when I got a call from the president of programming at current TV and he told me that that based on that film, you know, that we he was hiring us. He was hiring me and Jason together. Well, actually, before he even hired us, he flew us out to to San Francisco to meet us. 
Uh, and so, so we met with him. I guess he wanted to put f- a face to, you know, faces to this, th- this crazy student film. And we had a, you know, a, a, a pretty good meeting. But based on that film, he hired Jason and I to co-anchor the network together. And yeah, it was amazing. There were other people that were sort of cast. So we weren't the only two faces on the network, but we were the only ones who were authentically plucked out of college and sort of given this incredible opportunity, moved out to LA, put on national TV. We made up hours and hours and hours of, of, of airtime you know, for the network. And it was really an, an amazing job opportunity. And and Jason and I continued to be best friends through that entire process. Like we were, you know, we lived together, we worked together. It was really amazing. Was the salary commensurate with all of that? Like <laughs> pizzazz of being in that position? Or is it they take advantage of you guys being young and hungry and, you know, just kind of... Totally took advantage. We were, we made the first year $30,000. So we couldn't afford to live on our own, which was fine. We were, we were happy to be roommates. And I think the second year we made forty or forty-five thousand dollars, which was a nice, a nice little bump. But we did current TV for five or six years, and I remember that by the last year, I was making about I think it was like eighty-five thousand dollars salary from current TV. So it was never it was never like a huge paycheck, but it was uh, just an amazing job. And now you're you're buddies with uh, Al Gore, of course. Buddies with Al Gore, yeah, yeah. Were you out? Would you meet Al Gore back in those days? Of course, many times. Yeah, many times. We we would never. We would always ask Al if he watched our film Textures of Selfhood, and he would, he would famously <laughs> say he can neither confirm nor deny that he has seen a great <laughs> film of ours, but that he admires our work. Well, that was back during his Inconvenient Truth days, wasn't it? Or was that after? That was during. Yeah. He was yeah. a, he was a big I mean he's obviously still still a celebrity but he was back then he was very relevant because he was really pushing his environmental agenda and just a really warm jovial guy always great to get to see him saw him at all the company parties and uh you know we were very lucky I was, you know we were the faces of the TV network and so whenever Al saw Jason and I we would get the the biggest hello and hug and it was really awesome. What were some of your big learnings, life learnings from that current TV experience, those five or six years you spent doing that? I think we learned both that it's hard to feign interest uh, and excitement when you're being inauthentic to yourself and when you're not when you're not into something. I mean, I could speak for I think for the two of us. You know, when you're making hours and hours and hours of TV, inevitably you know, you know, you're going to have to cover stories that you're not necessarily that into. And I think over six years of doing that, we both realized that what we each wanted to do, you know, ultimately with our careers was to kind of do things that, you know, to kind of focus on things that we're passionate about. You know, we end, we did a lot of like brand stuff that wasn't very, you know, wasn't all that interesting. And I don't want to sound like this privileged guy. Like we were very lucky to be getting paid, you know, and we had a very fun job and there, there are a lot worse jobs to have. But as creators, as storytellers, you know, you get sort of put into a box and you often get enlisted to feign excitement and to do things that you're not necessarily all that, that interested in. What did you learn specifically about the art of storytelling? Oh man, uh, so much, so much. I mean, we got to work with the best of the best. What the president of programming at Current, his name was David Newman. He would always say that you know everything that you do really has to be in the service of the audience, and that to me is something that uh, has never left me. 
you know, this idea that really, you know, if you have the attention of even one person, but, you know, but ultimately, you know, if an audience is paying attention to you, then that's an amazing thing. And that's a responsibility not to be treated lightly. You know, you really have to respect the audience um, and to not talk down to them and also to not talk yourself up. You know, one of the funniest things, you know, when I first got on TV, you kind of want to make yourself look really cool, right? Like you want to make yourself look like aspirational and like this really cool guy, you know, but, but actually an audience is going to endear themselves to you. Not if they see you as being this like super cool guy, but if you're just being yourself, you know, as you're just being authentic to who you are. And in fact, one of the best ways to make an audience laugh is to be self-deprecating. So that's something that like, that was a, a kind of a paradigm shift for me in terms of thinking like how to present myself on camera, you know, cause you kind of think like that these people that are on TV and I grew up watching MTV. So that's kind of like the reference point that I'm using. Like when you watch MTV, you know, and we're you're looking at like a VJ or somebody who's like, you know, has their own show. You think that those people are like really cool, but it's not, they're not cool because they're acting cool. They're cool because they're authentically cool. And that's why they're on TV. So, so really the key to, I think, to speak to an audience and to galv and to galvanize an audience really is to just be yourself, to be like authentically who you are, to own your mistakes, to not try to be perfect or overly polished. So there's that. I learned about, you know, the three act structure of telling a story. You know, you need every story needs a beginning, middle and an end. You know, those are some of the basics. Generally, I think something that they say in, in, you know, in filmmaking is they use this term, it's kind of crass, but to kill your babies, you know, when you are writing something, you tend to feel very, or creating something, you tend to feel very precious about it. Generally, whenever you can, if there's like a line or a clip or a piece that you're, that you're very proud of, but it's just not working, you got to be unafraid to like cut it, you know, and just leave it on the cutting room floor. So that's a useful way to think about things to always, you know, be thinking in terms of like tightening up your content, making, making your pieces shorter, you know, good content can obviously go long, but, but it's gotta be really good, you know? So generally always be looking to like cut the fat to be whittled, you know, to be like to whittle down, you know, your pieces um, because the audience's attention span is fleeting and um, you got to really keep them. Were people recognizing you on the street at that time? Yeah, it happened. I mean, not very often and certainly not often enough for two people who were slaving away every single day in the studio, you know, putting out <laughs> hours and hours and hours of content. And we were, we were in a hundred million homes. The network failed ultimately because it, it didn't reach sort of critical mass. They couldn't figure out how to market themselves. You know, it was sort of a, there were a number of, of different issues, but, um, but nonetheless, I mean, we, we worked really hard on the network and it was, it was underwatched, but yeah, there were, there was a small group of dedicated fans and we would occasionally get, get recognized. And it was always an amazing feeling. You know, we were always so grateful whenever we were recognized. And about a year before it all ended, you had uploaded your first or one of your first music videos to YouTube. Yeah. I'd been dabbling in, in, in music. As I mentioned, I was learning to play guitar and to be a singer and songwriter and, I had the luxury of of earning a salary all while doing this. And I would moonlight out in Los Angeles as a singer-songwriter. I was like playing gigs actually in and around LA. And so uh yeah, I would put up music videos myself, you know, playing guitar and singing on my YouTube channel. 
And that's something that I continue to be very, very passionate about music. And it's not necessarily even something that I ever aspired to do full time, but I just love the craft and I love the journey. I just think it's, it's always wonderful to like suck at something and then put in the time and watch yourself get better. There are a few feelings that I think are better than that. You know, like I, I used to be a terrible guitar player. I don't, you know, I, I didn't grow up singing or anything like that. But the fact that I can like now listen to myself and be like, oh, you know, like I actually like appreciate how I sound there. Yeah, I looked at some of your videos, man. And, you know, the first couple, you, you were clearly a little bit shy or a little green. <laughs> you remember you had sunglasses on and one inside. And then I looked at some of the later videos and, and while the the musicianship was marginally better, I think it came across, your presence was much better, I think, because you just had the confidence of having done it. You could tell you'd put, a, put in a lot of time into practicing. And, and I, I remember you saying in some interview that you, you were spending a two or three hours a day just focusing on your music every single day. Yeah. Yeah, I was putting hours and hours and hours and hours into it. And I think it probably drove it's probably one of the reasons why Jason, you know, moved across the country as soon as he could after it <laughs> ended. But yeah, I was practicing for hours and hours and hours. And I was gigging. I was like playing, you know, shows in Los Angeles and I recorded an EP actually that my one musical claim to fame is that um an executive at Virgin America loved my music and put it aboard their airplanes back when Virgin America existed. Wow. Yeah. So it was like it was carried in their system. You know, it's just not something that I that I grew up doing, but yet it meant so much to me to to be to learn to be able to learn how to do it. And I just was like obsessed with the with the journey and like and to be able to call myself a musician and a and a singer and a songwriter, like that's really what I wanted to be able to do. And so I worked really hard at it. And you know, I mean it's like being able to 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 perform and have it be convincing that's like a, a very difficult thing to do. You know, it takes a lot of skill. It takes a lot of patience and practice. But yeah, I got to a point where I was like pretty happy with my, with my performances. But ultimately, I kind of realized that it wasn't something that I had the grit to do full time. Like I just didn't think that I would be like music is a very competitive industry. And I knew that if you have good songs, songwriting really is like the key. It's like the magic. You know, if you can write good songs, then you can get fans for your music. You know, I mean, there you can look at Bob Dylan, you can look at any of the great songwriters and not all of them have incredible, you know, American Idol style voices. Like look at Bright Eyes, you know, Bright Eyes, Connor Oberst, for example, he was one of my, you know, musical heroes. Amazing, amazing songwriter. So for me, it was like, I knew that if I, I really wanted to kind of like go, you know, all in on the music and put it and continue to practice with the, with the rigor that I was practicing beforehand, maybe I had a shot, but I just didn't think that it was very realistic given my other interests and the fact that I just had started singing and playing guitar, you know, only in college. And so I decided to basically, you know, put it in the back seat. It's still a part of who I am. It's still very much, you know, I'm still very much you know, an artist who can play guitar and, and I'm very proud of the songs that I've written and the, you know, the, the music that I have up on, on my YouTube channel. But, but at a certain point, I realized that I needed to sort of demote it in my life to make room for other things.
Well, in any case, you had an experience with your mom. I believe it was, what, 2012? Yeah. So my mom is somebody who, you know, I've always been very close with. And after the gig at Current TV ended, I was still living in Los Angeles at the time. And I was still doing music to some degree. But I started to hear from my mom, who was living back in New York, that she was beginning to experience just a few sort of unexplained health problems. She began to have some trouble with her thyroid. And she began also to complain of brain fog. And, you know, I was kind of living this like luxurious life in LA at the time. I was unemployed, but I was very uh, sort of happy with my circumstances, you know, or at least with, you know, with the fact that like, you know, LA is a very comfortable city for me. I had lived in LA for 10 years prior. So I had a lot of friends in LA. I was very comfortable um, in the city, but that, that comfort was starting to actually make me very anxious because of this sort of looming uncertainty about my mom's health. And so I started taking regular trips back to New York so that I could spend time with her and kind of like get a sense of what was going on. And I would, you know, start taking her to like different doctor's appointments, but generally like it was pretty unclear. And my mom was also very young at the time. So, I mean, the last thing that I would ever think that she had back then, she was about 58 years old, was a life-threatening illness, or at least an illness that could have implications for, you know, for my mom's longevity. And things sort of began to escalate. And I was working on a project in LA at the time that was just about to wrap up. I really wanted to get, you know, get back to New York and spend more time with my mom. And so as soon as this project that I was working on in LA kind of wrapped up, I decided to move from LA back to New York. And I started taking a very active um, interest in her, in her health, trying to figure out what, what was going on. And intended with that, I was close, you know, I was close with my brothers and my grandma at the time. And, you know, my, I come from a very close family. And ultimately, because we couldn't get answers in New York, which is where, which is where she was, we decided to book a trip to the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. And the Cleveland Clinic is known for taking on very complex medical cases, sort of like the Mayo Clinic. You know, these are like the best hospitals that we have in the United States. And they take, they're known for taking sort of an all hands on deck approach, you know, like they'll bring, I just remember having this conversation with my mom, actually, you know, like, you know, mom, you know, they're going to, they're going to bring in an endocrinologist. They're going to bring in a, neuro, a neurologist. They're going to bring in a cardiologist. Like everybody's going to be at the table and we're going to finally figure out what's going on with you. And so we went to the Cleveland clinic and we, you know, had a battery of different tests, but ultimately it was there for the first time that my mom was diagnosed with a neurodegenerative condition. She was prescribed drugs for both Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. And that to me was, First of all, it was the first time in my life that I'd ever had had a panic attack. Yeah, I uh, just Googling those drugs, you know, knowing nothing about either condition, I just couldn't believe what I was reading, just how bad these conditions get, you know, that nobody has ever survived Alzheimer's disease. And it wasn't even clear whether or not my mom had Alzheimer's disease, but she was, you know, given drugs for the condition and Parkinson's disease as well. I was like, well, what's the big deal about Parkinson's disease? And then I started reading about how people with Parkinson's disease, you know, they lose their, their ability to move. You know, many of them end up actually dying because they choke when trying to eat. It's like a major cause of mortality 
for people with Parkinson's, late, late stage Parkinson's disease. And so just thinking about my mom going through that was just the most upsetting thing, you know, imaginable. And it was just really, really dark. I remember, you know, my heart began racing, my vision, uh, you know, I started, I was sitting in this like hotel room, like looking, you know, blankly into my computer screen. It felt like when you're boiling water, suddenly the water just boils over the pot and it starts making, you know, it starts like hitting the fire and the hot stove below. And that's kind of like what, you know, the, my, my consciousness felt like at the time. There's actually a music video on my YouTube channel of me. I brought my guitar on that trip to to entertain my mom because my mom was a, a she always loved listening to me play guitar and I covered this song by the National Fake Empire and uh, it's it's on my YouTube channel and that was recorded in the hotel room in Cleveland Ohio but basically that became the line in the sand I mean at that at that point I essentially lost interest in everything else you know like i lost interest in trying to make it as a musician i lost interest in you know my my former career as a tv host and all i wanted to do was learn what i could about why this was happening to my mom you know if there was anything that could be done to help her what could be done to prevent this from ever happening to me down the road that's really what it was like it wasn't about making money it wasn't about writing a book it wasn't about anything other than just trying to find truths uh, that could help my family and that really was, you know, that trip to the Cleveland Clinic really was the first step in the journey that would ultimately become, you know, become what I currently do today. I have a technical question about that. Is that something that it's like a privately funded thing to go to the Cleveland Clinic and get this battery of tests with the biggest experts in the world? Or how, how does that actually work? If you have health insurance, you just go as far as I can remember. So anyone with insurance can go to the Cleef. That's like the, the, the Harvard of, of medical facilities, right? Yeah. It's either that or the Mayo Clinic, but yeah, they're the top. Then after they give you their diagnosis, really there's no point in getting a second or third opinion because that's those are the top guys or girls. Yeah, but we, we still did. I mean, we did because because even my mom's diagnosis at the time was kind of murky. You know, she had like a Parkinson's-like syndrome, but it was wasn't fully clear as to what what it actually was and also they have you know i mean the cleveland the cleveland clinic is is that's sort of like the their reputation right is as being one of the top hospitals in the u.s but they have other hospitals that have maybe better neurology departments or at the time we didn't even fully appreciate that it was a neurological condition that my mom had so i believe it was after the cleveland clinic we ended up i think we had made appointments at columbia in new york you know, because you want to have like a home hospital. And then we we also, I think around the, that same time, went down to Baltimore, Maryland, where they have Johns Hopkins, which I believe, if I recall correctly, has like, according to US News, you know, they put out this annual list every year. It might have like the best, you know, according to them, neurology department in the US. So we really left no stone unturned um, in trying to figure out what, could, what, you know, could be done to help my mom. You're obviously very knowledgeable right now about a lot of this stuff, but what percentage of the knowledge you have now would you say you had back then in those early, early days of your mom's diagnosis? Very little. I mean, I knew about the, you know, I knew about nutrition sort of like basics, which I guess to most people would be fairly high level, you know, nutrition knowledge because of my interest, you know, through, throughout high school. So I definitely had like a, a solid foundational knowledge and I knew where to look for good peer-reviewed research. 
you know, I knew back then what the difference was between fructose and glucose and ATP and creatine and mitochondria. Like I knew a lot. And whether or not I had knowledge, I think what I also have always sort of had intuitively about health is wisdom. You know, that difference between knowledge and wisdom, you know, like knowledge is a bunch of different facts, but wisdom is like knowing how to connect the dots between those facts. So I've always sort of had a penchant for understanding health and specifically, you know, like health science. And that's why I decided to take an active approach in my mom's health, because I knew that I could sort of be there and ask questions and sort of my background in journalism at Current TV also helped with this as well. Like sort of parse out because the vast majority of things that a doctor will say to a patient go goes over that patient's head. And patients, especially when they're scared and frustrated, they don't know how to ask questions. They don't know how to, you know, they don't know how to be how to ask for specificity from their doctors. And that's all you did for six years before that. Exactly. Was ask people questions. And I had a vested interest in helping my mom, you know, like I had a vested interest in reducing the number of medications that she was on. Whereas doctors don't really, I mean, they, they kind of care, but they also don't really care. You know, like they're very, they're, I mean, I've experienced with, I mean, hundreds of doctors, you know, not one, you know, like they're, they're so, un, they tend to be so unwilling to deprescribe, you know, to like to take a patient off of a medication, even though, you know, a lot of these medications, especially in regard to dementia and even movement disorders like Parkinson's disease are minimally efficacious. I just knew that if anybody was going to help my mom, that it was going to be me, you know, being there with her and really getting to like the root understanding of what was going on and what could be done to help her. And that led to the Kickstarter campaign. Yes. Basically, I began reading and reading and reading and reading and researching and, you know, diving into the medical literature. And, and when I couldn't understand something, I would cross-reference it. And, you know, I basically just became fixated on learning all that I could. And I read books, you know, like books that are written for lay people. I watched TED Talks. I also read scientific literature and I began reaching out to researchers around the, around the world. But basically anybody who was a major player in the sort of dementia, nutrition world popped up onto my radar. And I became sort of like when you look at like an FBI, like in the, you know, in the movies when they're tracking like a criminal and they have like the criminal in the center and they've got like these red lines. Yeah. So that in my brain, that's how it became where I was like tracking all these different lines of research. And, you know, I had memorized fairly effortlessly, you know, all of the associated researchers and and so I began reaching out to them to ask them questions. And, you know, not everybody was quick to respond to me. And so then I decided that maybe I could use my skills as a filmmaker to, to make a documentary and to do a project that would give me the excuse to reach out to these researchers, not just to reach out to them, but to like actually go and visit their labs and to learn from them and to put this all on film and to make a, uh, you know, a, a piece out of it, you know, like a, like a body of work that could then be used to kind of show, you know, what it is that my mom's going through to sort of immortalize, you know, the experience that we're having, um, which was a lot less pleasant than the experiences that I was trying to immortalize back at University of Miami. But on an emotional level, they would be peak experiences for you being able to spend that time with your mom at this point in your life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And to help, you know, to help other people with the insights that I was learning, that I was like able to glean from the literature that I felt like nobody else was talking about. What's one of those things that no one else was talking about 
that you had just you discovered from your research? I mean, I think the most shocking thing is that, you know, and it's actually not, it shouldn't be very surprising, but that dementia often begins in the brain decades before the first symptom of memory loss. So when I looked at my mom's brain fog and, you know, the memory loss that she was experiencing, you know, I realized that this is something that was probably developing in her brain over 10, 20, 30 years. And if you take 30 years away from my mom's age, you get me. So it became something that it was just very obvious to me that it basically was like looking in the mirror and seeing for the first time in your life what your purpose is. I had all these skills and interests and passions that really, I guess, over the course of my life had seemed disparate that now for the first time seemed completely aligned. It's this interest in, in health and nutrition, this interest in storytelling and creativity, you know, the love that I have for my mother the ability that I have to communicate with an audience and to, you know, use the tools of social media, everything sort of just kind of like lined up. Even the poetry of the music, you know, and expressing and, and relating to people on a less scientific level, yeah. which is also very important. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, you know, if you're the only person that can do something, then you have to do it. And that was how I felt. You know, I felt that, you know, my mom had a story. My my mom was young and beautiful and, and, you know, very relatable and that I was relatable. But at the same time, I wielded, I was able to wield scientific knowledge in a way that most people are not able to do. You know, I, 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 I saw that, I acknowledged that. And that the only reason why I became interested in this, in this topic is because my, my mom had dementia. But if I was actually going to help people avert this condition, then I had to loop, I had to bring people in that didn't even know that they were interested in it. You know, I had to kind of create like a Trojan horse. And that to me was this, was the documentary project that I started. How did that uh, go? Did you get them funding? Yeah. So we did a Kickstarter campaign for it and the, I cut the teaser trailer, which you could watch at breadheadmovie.com, breadheadmovie.com. And uh, we raised the Kickstarter campaign with the goal was $75,000 and we ended up raising via the Kickstarter, about $140,000 from people all around the world. So I hired uh, a producer in the project. And then, you know, you kind of build out your personnel as you need them, but like a, a director of photography, you know, recording, you know, engineers when you, when you go do an interview. Shooting a documentary is expensive. And essentially, we achieved a rough cut of the film. And it's a cut that I'm very proud of. But now we're at a point where we need to actually raise more money to finish it. So the film is not fully finished where it's been sort of a, you know, a, a somewhat painful process in that it's, you know, it's just frustrating how expensive it is to make a movie and how limited, you know, avenues there are for getting funding for meaningful documentary projects like this, you know, when you see all the money that's spent in Hollywood on fairly frivolous projects, you know, we've tried a number of different avenues and it's been a little bit difficult to, to find the finishing funds for the project. But, you know, I remain hopeful that we will be able to finish it in the near future. You know, some of the Kickstarter campaign contributors, and I'm grateful for every single one of them, but because it has taken us a while to finish the film, some of them have have left comments or sent messages that have actually been pretty ne negative, pretty hateful, and that's been you know very upsetting 
because obviously underlying all of the struggles that it takes to make a movie and uh, not just a movie, but a legitimate movie, my mom's health continued to decline. And so it's been actually very, very difficult. Like I want nothing more than to get the, the movie finished and to put it out there, you know, so I don't yet know what, you know, how we're going to do that, whether it's another crowdfunding campaign or, you know, maybe some, some angel investor will come out of the woodwork and help us, you know, get to the finish line. But, uh, but it's definitely something that is, you know, front of mind for me to finish. And it's a beautiful film. I'm very proud of it. Well, you also took on two very lightning rod issues of science and diet. So whenever you're going public with an opinion or perspective on science and diet, you're going to have all kinds of people, lovers, haters, you know, trollers. How did you prepare yourself for that? Like, Because it sounds like you really have to know your stuff when you're talking about either of those topics. I've always been very transparent about what I know, what I think I know to be true, what you know my opinion is, and what I don't know. I'm very dedicated to learning and understanding, and the fact that you know my mom was sick and I had that experience with her, and that I know what the potential repercussions could be of a bad recommendation. It keeps me very honest. I mean, it keeps me very honest and very transparent, and ultimately, I'm. 100% fully committed to helping people. I mean, I also have to make a living, obviously, and I'm, I'm very grateful in that I've found a way to do that. But yeah, my, my passion really is to to help people and to be sort of a voice of reason because I think real harm does come from misinformation in the nutrition space. And there's a lot of that. And so for me, the idea that I could potentially help even one person means that what my mom experienced, though I would you know, in a heartbeat, give up everything that I've accomplished sort of since that early diagnosis. If I can use that tragedy and that pain for something positive and to help, you know, somebody, you know, potentially not go through what my mom went through, then it wouldn't have been in vain. I think people know that, you know, and nutrition. Yeah. Nutrition is like, I get into battles on social media all the time because people tend to feel very strongly about their nutrition choices. You know, nutrition is like a religion for most people, like what they eat, you know, I mean, it's one of the few things that you'll see consistently in people's bios, you know, on their Instagram pages, like the way that they eat, you know, whether they're vegan or keto or paleo, it's, it's, I mean, it's like mind boggling, but for me, it's really just about helping people sort of understand the truth and to be a little bit less confused by nutrition science because nutrition science, it can be as complex or as simple as you have the time to make it. So what are like the top three things that you learned about nutrition that you didn't know before yeah. all of this happened? Well, I'm pretty unapologetic in the fact that I'm pretty convinced that a diet that incorporates both plants and animals is an optimal diet. There's really no way to actually prove any of this in humans. You know, you can't, the way to prove something in science is with a, with a long-term randomized control trial, but you're never going to have a randomized control trial that puts people you know, large groups of people on, you know, a specific diet and have them live out the entirety of their lives with that diet while comparing health outcomes. So we have very few certainties in this, in this field, but I'm convinced based on, on my research and based on talking with the brightest minds in the field. And just from an evolutionary perspective that a diet that incorporates both animal products 
and plans is optimal. And that sounds very straightforward, but you know, you have like vegans and you have carnivores and there's like, the, it's like the eternal battle, right? So yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of grass-fed red meat, of wild fatty fish, of eggs. I'm also a fan of dark leafy greens like kale, spinach, arugula, of berries, of cruciferous vegetables and, and things like that. For the, you know, just for what it's worth, my mom was a very, as I mentioned, she was very attuned to messaging surrounding heart disease. So my mom never ate any red meat ever, never ate any, you know, eggs, you know, never saw her eating a whole egg or anything like that because of the dietary cholesterol and the yolks. Um, and instead she ate a fairly low fat diet that, you know, she, she consumed the government recommended six to 11 servings of grains, you know, per day. She avoided saturated fat. She avoided dietary cholesterol and, you know, look how her health turned out. Now I'm not saying that that was the, you know, that I know for sure that that was the cause, but it certainly didn't help her. And so you have a lot of people in the nutrition sphere that, you know, that promote their dietary philosophy as if it's gospel. And my, my message is actually one of balance, you know, incorporate both animals and plants. I would say the second thing, it's really important to avoid as best you can ultra processed foods, you know, to minimize your consumption of packaged processed foods. I eat packaged foods, you know, like anybody else, but I minimize my consumption of them. And I know that if it's in my shopping cart, it's as good as in my stomach. Whole foods, so minimally processed foods, like, you know, single ingredient foods, these are going to be the best foods for you. Cooking at home, cooking at home is massively important. It's like, it's so, and now, you know, with these like quarantine times, I think a lot more people are doing that. But when you eat out at a restaurant, you know, the, the food that you're eating is just usually it's like soaked in added oils, added sugar, all kinds of unsavory additives. So cooking at home is massively important. And then aside from the ultra processed foods, I would say the third thing, I think it's pretty worthwhile to minimize your consumption of unhealthy fats. When it comes to the brain, your brain is made of fat. So the kind of fats that you eat dictate, you know, to a large degree, the quality of your brain tissue. So I, you know, make the recommendation to people to avoid um, as best they can canola oil, corn oil, soybean oil, these ultra refined grain and seed oils, I think are not doing your brain health any favors. They're also not good for your cardiovascular health. The problem with these cooking oils is that they're very uh, damage prone and a damaged fat damages you. So avoiding those oils and instead reaching for extra virgin olive oil, avocado oil, these sorts of like Mediterranean fats, butter, you know, I think are all great options. And you've now, I mean, you, you had a best-selling book, uh, Genius Foods, that was a New York Times bestseller. Uh, so that kind of put you in the spotlight. You've been debating with doctors and nutritionists and people with lots of, you know, degrees and titles and things like that. How has that experience helped you to evolve in your own perspective on the service, the, the work that you do in the world? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it just ma has made me very deliberate in my messaging. I'm always very cautious. I'm also al always open to feedback and to acknowledging when, when I've been wrong about certain things. But generally, I'm always cautious about that person, you know, on the other you know, on the receiving end of the, you know, the receiving phone, you know, like how is this person who might be in poverty or who might be morbidly obese or who might have an eating disorder, 
how are they receiving my message? You know, what if this person, you know, currently has cancer? What if this person has a, a loved one with, you know, advanced Alzheimer's disease? Everything that I do, aside from being filtered sort of through the lens of science, also has to go through the lens of like of empathy for me. And I think that's another reason why people really have sort of gravitated to my message. It's that, you know, for me, this is not just about data and evidence and facts. It's it's really about getting people to make change in their lives and to and to not doing any harm. You know, I'm not a medical doctor, but, you know, I know that medical doctors, you know, the Hippocratic Oath is like, first, do no harm. And doctor in the purest sense of the word means literally teacher. And so I might not be a doctor, but I'm certainly, I've been, I've been blessed in that I've been able to teach many people around the world. And so I think when you have that position, what comes with it is great responsibility. And so I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm always trying to make sure that my messaging is one that's rooted in, in science and pragmatism, but also, you know, empathy for people because people are, are, are struggling. You know, we have a, an uneven distribution of resources around the world and, uh, you know, especially in the, in the wellness world today where there's so much money, you know, and commerce tied to it, there's a lot of people that prey on people's ignorance about what it means to be healthy. And so, you know, I mean, I, I like to kind of offer people the low-hanging fruit because it's the low-hanging fruit. It's like the dietary modifications that I just mentioned that are going to get most people most of the way there. You have a podcast. It's called The Genius Life, which is, I guess, named after your second book, which is a more of a lifestyle type of manual for on-ramping people to this more healthier lifestyle. And you have a very prolific social media feed. We talked about this before because we're friends outside of all of this, but I'm so impressed. Are you still doing your own social media, by the way? Yeah, I still do. <laughs> So I'm just looking at I'm looking at your feet now, right? And I see this one post, the 20 Trader Joe's keto products. And it's wonderful, right? But I'm looking at it from a technical perspective. I'm I'm thinking, okay, this guy's got 20 products. You have to spend time Google searching these products, looking for white backgrounds. If there weren't any white backgrounds, you have to cut them out. You have to lay them all out with the numbers and, you know, make sure everything was proportioned properly and about I mean, this is like it's like a good two hours right there. And then you also always include these really in-depth captions, descriptions. I mean, so generous, all the information you're providing. And then you're all up in the comments on top of that. I mean, how do you have, how do you have time to do all of that? Oh, my God. Well, it's sometimes to the detriment of my, of my personal life. Is that part of your mission? Do you see yourself as like the the superhero of health that you have to kind of dedicate that time in the bat cave to put the, put all this together for us people of Gotham city. I kind of feel like it. Yeah. I mean like to the I like the superhero, like bringing it back. I, I kind of do feel that way. You know, I'm, people are so misled and like confused and, and you know, there, there are also well-meaning people in the fitness world who, who promote science, but do it in a way that I think is like, doesn't have that empathetic aspect to it. And, uh, and I, I just feel for people, you know, I think about the other, per ultimately, I think about the other person, the person who's reading my post as being my mother. And so sometimes you have to kind of be firm with people, you know, like, 
that's kind of how sometimes I, I am. You know, I like to, I, I have a perspective and I have a point of view and I don't really like to beat around the bush. And I know that a lot of people want change, but not many people want to change themselves. You know, not many people want to make that change in their lives, but they want things to be different. It's just what I'm passionate about. It's what I feel like my life's purpose is. And, you know, I, I probably should spend less time on social media, but sometimes, you know, when I get an insight or a new way to think or describe, you know, something, I just can't help myself. You know, I just, I just have to like create it. It's so great, man. Like the, this one post, how to detox. I mean, you have, you have a poop doll. Like, did you buy that on Amazon for this post or did you happen to have already have that? How did that I bought it on Amazon for, for the post. For, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's commitment. <laughs> I mean, because <laughs> you know, I remember when your your following was it was not three hundred fifty thousand. It was much. It was probably you know much less than that. And you've just been so committed. You're posting every day. You're you're dedicating a lot of time to this. I'm curious, were you one of the innovators of the sort of comparison model of the social media posts? Or did you did you get that from somewhere else? Because I see a lot of other people doing it now. I wasn't like the first one, but I definitely was one of the early ones. I got in sort of at the right time. I started doing, I started with infographics and then I started doing the comparison posts. So yeah, I would say that I was one of the, definitely one of the early ones and especially putting out higher quality content. There's been a lot of kind of like low resolution stuff floating around on on Instagram for a while. But yeah, I mean, my content, I think, from day one, always kind of like looked a little bit more professional. And that's because I know, how, you know, I've been a professional Photoshop user for 20 years. <laughs> Not 20 years, but yeah, 20 years, just about, because I picked it up back when I was in high school. So again, it's just all of the things, you know, all of these like disparate skills have been very useful. Um, to me today. And that's, and that's why I can kind of do it. And it's not, you know, it might not take me as long as it would take an intern, for example. Right. That's incredible, man. What advice would you give to someone who has went through the same thing you went through with your mom and they wanted to become more informed or maybe even a little bit further than that and become more of an industry expert in the same way? Do your homework, always be open-minded you know, always be willing to challenge your assumptions and your beliefs. You know, for me, for example, before I got started in all this, like I would be, you know, a brown rice bowl would be like the number one, my number one favorite food to eat, you know, then I realized that, you know, grains like rice are just, you know, most people don't need to base their diet around grains, you know, and grain products. And, you know, one of the things that I discovered when writing The Genius Life is that, brown rice is actually a, a great vehicle for arsenic today. Um, so if you're eating lots of brown rice, you're accumulating inorganic arsenic, which is shortening people's lives prematurely, you know, around, around the globe, you know, and I still eat, you know, occasional, I still eat rice occasionally, but, um, but yeah, you just always have to be willing to look into your constitution and be willing to kind of like challenge your, your preconceptions and, do the homework, make connections, you know, reach out to people. That's what I did. Be transparent in your motivations. You know, when I first started doing this, as I mentioned, it was not to create a business. It was not to build a social media profile. It was to help my mom, to be patient with people, to be authentic, and just to be, and to be consistent and persistent and to just, you know, 
show up every day, you know, dedicate, you know, an hour, two hours, three hours of your day to reading medical literature and going into the references and following, you know, the, the breadcrumb trail to truth. I mean, that was all and continues to be a major part of, of my day, you know, every day, like I'm looking at the latest studies that come out and, and yeah. So, I mean, that's, I think, you know, all that together is really what it takes. Yeah. And just to not be hopeless, you know, to have hope. I like that. Have hope. And how are you defining success these days? I mean, for me, I feel successful because I'm able to do this for a living. You know, it's not about like how much money I make or anything like that. It's the fact that I'm able to do this, that I have been able to move into a house, you know, where I now have like a, my own podcast studio. That's like an amazing thing, you know, that my podcast kind of like is, you know, can help pay my rent. Like, that's incredible that I get to write books for a living, that I wake up every day and I get to basically create my own schedule. To me, that's amazing. I'm surrounded by passionate people who are also kind of doing what they love. You know, I have people that I work with that, that support me. To me, that feels great. You know, like I've never really had a job that anybody would, would describe as being like a corporate job, but yeah, I mean, the, you know what I do now, it, 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 it brings together all of my skills, all of my interests. I feel like I'm helping people and I get feedback on a regular basis that keeps me going. And, yeah, that to me is, is what makes me feel successful. Beautiful, man. Well, I just want to offer a couple of quick reflections. I mean, you've pretty much done the work for me. Typically, at the end of my interviews, I'll talk about the connections between um, where you are now and where you started off as a kid. And it's pretty obvious that you've sort of, you've, you've embodied this, this exosquat fighter archetype throughout your entire life. <laughs> and you've taken the skills that you've learned at every stage and you've incorporated them, not just in a way to, to contribute professionally, but in a way to help people. And it's been a, it's a great example for other people, I think, to look at their lives and whatever they're doing right now and to see it as something that if it's not coming into play right now is something that's useful, it will at some point. So just, you know, don't give up hope, keep hope. Keep the hope and uh, keep doing what feels right and keep doing what is in service to to humanity. And I really love the part about the the why behind the time that you invest in your social media posts. And I imagine also with your books and your podcast is what if someone like my mom was listening or reading, I would want them to be as informed as possible and, and in a relatable way. And I think that's beautiful. So... Thank you so much for your dedication, for your courage, for your creativity, and taking the leaps of faith that you've taken in your life. Uh, the world is definitely a better place because you're in it. I'm happy to be able to call you a friend. I'm inspired by you. I've been inspired by many of the things you've put out there. And I think about you often, man. Whenever I'm at a restaurant or wherever I'm <laughs> cooking, I think about you. <laughs> wow. I love that. <laughs> I, I do. Yeah, I do. I mean, it may not be, you know, right there in the prefrontal cortex, but it's somewhere in my consciousness. I think about genius food and brain health and all of that. And so it's definitely, it's, 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 it's left an impression on all of us. And I think about you, the social media, I think, look, anytime I, cause I put, post these videos every day and it takes me a good couple of hours to do it. And I'm like, Hey, Max is over there putting in the work. I may as well do the, put in the time as well. So 
So thanks for that example as well. I really appreciate that. Oh man, of course. Yeah. Well, you're, you're killing it. And, uh, I feel the same way about you. Very grateful to call you a friend and love the content that you've been putting out lately. And yeah, it's just amazing that so many people, you know, they, they, they get up every day and they like, for any number of reasons, they go and they work for somebody to make, you know, to make somebody higher than them richer, you know, or or whatever, or maybe it's just to pay the bills. But I think that you and I are very similar in that for us, it's always been mission, mission first, you know, like I, I definitely spent a good number of years broke before I started making any money when I was doing this research really from a mom and trying to figure out like how I was able to balance the two. But when you put good things out into the, into the universe and when your intention is pure and you're authentic and you're doing what it is that you're, that you're, that you've got the skill set to be able to do, then I think the universe has no choice but to open doors for you and to help you in your journey to be successful. And, you know, I've seen it, you know, in you with your work and, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to kind of be in the middle of it, you know, now with mine, but it's a reproducible formula. And so, you know, to anybody listening, you know, it's, it's definitely something that, that you yourself can also do. Thank you for listening to my interview with Max Lugavere, co-author of Genius Foods and Genius Life and host of the Genius Life podcast. For all things health and science and wellness and diet related, you definitely want to follow Max on Instagram. He's at Max Lugavere, L-U-G-A-V-E-R-E. He puts out these really fun and accessible but informative health graphics, and he's very consistent and super relatable. If you want to hear more stories like Max's, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and check out the archive. I've got so many other interviews with amazing people who've overcome all kinds of crazy challenges in order to start their movement. And what I keep finding and what you'll keep hearing conversation after conversation is that the person's greatest obstacle, the one they wrestled with the most, the one they cursed day after day, the one that kept them up tossing and turning at night, always ends up playing either a feature or a guest role in helping them find their purpose. If you like what you hear, please rate the podcast. It helps other people discover these inspirational stories. And as always, you can find everything that Max and I discussed in the show notes, as well as a transcript of our entire interview on my website, which is lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. And while you're there, sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email. I send out this free, short, sweet daily motivational message every morning at 6 a.m pacific time i guarantee you after a week you'll be addicted to them and you'll tell all of your friends about it and if you have any feedback or suggestions for me what i should do more of what i should do less of who i should bring on the podcast you can actually text me directly i'll give you my number you ready it's 323-405-9100 Six six three two three four zero five nine one six six. That's my number. Text me directly. Just whip, whip out your phone if you don't already have it in your hand. Dial that number and you'll get right in touch with me. All right. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week with another conversation from the end of the tunnel. Have a great day.
you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.